All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome, everybody, to Your Brain on Science with me, Elena. Today, we are going to get into a topic that we haven't really talked much about, uh, which is the intersection between psychedelics and inflammation. And I am by no means an expert in anything related to inflammation. Um, the extent of my knowledge is basically from required biology and biochemistry courses. Uh, but to really help myself and our listeners understand these concepts, I've invited Dr. Charles Nichols, a scientist and professor of pharmacology at Louisiana State University School of Medicine in the Department of Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. Um, we're going to discuss some of his work in this field. So welcome, Dr. Nichols. We're really excited to bring you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so before we begin talking about those scientific concepts, uh, could you take a moment to just highlight how you got started in the sciences and how you landed at studying psychedelics uh, in your own lab? Because it's always interesting uh, when you see like a father-son duo and uh, that both study this kind of the similar things. So just I uh, want to know if that's like a coincidence or inspiration or. That's a long story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, so my I think most people are well in the field are familiar with my father, uh, David Nichols. Uh, he's been studying psychedelics since the late 1960s professionally. And um, my mother also, she is a pharmacologist and she had done work with um, behavior pharmacology and psychoactive chemicals. And so when I was when I was growing up, you know, my, my, my parents would be talking about pharmacology and drugs and chemistry. My dad would take me into the lab when I was a kid and do little chemistry experiments. And my mom would take me to the pharmacology department, show me doing perfusions on rats and things like that. Um, so I was always interested in science. Uh, but, you know, as, as a young child growing up, um, I, I really didn't know what kind of science that my dad did. I just knew he was a, he was a chemist and I, I, I didn't, really understand that he was working with psychedelics until probably about my junior, senior year of high school. And then I went, oh, well, that's cool. <laughs> um, but when I when I started college, uh, I, I thought chemistry was really, was neat. Um, so I, I started at the uh, chemistry program at Purdue University and did that for a couple of years. And it, it just, I didn't like it. Um, I thought it was boring and especially after the PCAM class, it's like I knew after PCAM, I did not want to be a chemist. Uh, so I, I, I my, my mother at the time was doing a postdoc in biochemistry. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe chemistry, biochemistry. So I switched to the biology department with the, their program in biochemistry at Purdue and uh, started enjoying the coursework much better. And I, I did undergraduate research in a lab studying bacteria phosphate metabolism. Uh, it was Dr. Barry Warner. And they were infecting bacteria with uh, bacteriophage and swapping genes in and out. And the first PCR machine arrived at Purdue's campus and we were amplifying DNA. And it was, and it was really cool. So I was fascinated by um, genetics, molecular biology, and, and what was really coming online there. Uh, so I, I went to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon and joined the laboratory of a fruit fly neurobiology lab that was focused on studying the neurogenetics of retina development in the fruit fly. And um, so in that laboratory, it was really hardcore genetic dissection and, and mapping of fine mapping of genes and loci and northern blots and southern blots. Um, and it was a very strong kind of uh, developmental biology uh, program that they had there. So I, I learned a very solid foundation of developmental biology, neurobiology, genetics. Um, but after several years of working with fruit flies, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm just going to do another northern blot again. And it just 
just didn't, I, I wanted to switch to something. So I thought, well, how about mammalian behavioral neuroscience, mm -hmm. something like that. So I started looking for postdocs and um, inquired in a few positions. And one of the places was uh, Vanderbilt's Neuroscience Center. And they had a big cluster hire that they listed. And one of the names on, out of 20 or so of the faculty was Elaine Sanders Bush, and who I'd heard my father mention as being um, a good scientist in doing some really cool stuff with Sarah. And I was kind of like, oh, hmm, serotonin, I, you know, that's involved in animal behavior. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that. So I applied to her and she wrote back um, almost immediately. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know why my name was there. I told him not to put my name there. I don't have a position. So I ended up taking a position in a laboratory doing Parkinson's disease um, research, uh, behavioral pharmacology and Parkinson's disease. No, that, that was, could be something fun. And then um, it was shortly after that, that Elaine Sanders Bush contacted me again and said, oh, I, I've, I've got money now for that position. If you're still interested, can you come out next week and interview? Wow. And that kind of took me by surprise. And like, well, I might as well go out, you know, get a trip to Nashville <laughs> and, and see it. So I went and I remember giving a lecture of hardcore genetics of fruit fly eye genes and, and going into that and seeing half the lab falling asleep during, during my talk, which was the very first event. I'm like, oh man, I blew it. Um, but I really liked Elaine and the people in the lab were fantastic. Vanderbilt had a, a pharmacology was an excellent environment. And the project that she proposed to me was she had funding to study the effects of LSD on gene expression in the rat brain using the developed, the then developed technology at Vanderbilt called differential display PCR, because this was prior to microarrays. And so I'm like, oh, wow, I could combine my knowledge of molecular biology and genetics with psychedelic drug behavioral pharmacology. And it was just too good to, to pass up. So at that point, I backed out of the other postdoc position and uh, went to Vanderbilt. And um, it's a, I think it's a misconception that people have that I went into the field because of my father and wanted to follow. It, it really wasn't like that at all to the, to the extent that about a month or two after I was working there, Elaine came out of her office waving my CV around and said, I was just reading your CV and you know, your last name is Nichols. And I just, I, I saw again that you went to Purdue. Do you know Dave Nichols at Purdue? <laughs> and at that point I said, yeah, he's my dad. So um, really, I, I think it, it you know, I, I found my way to the study of serotonin and psychedelics really independent of, of my father. And um, I think once, once I made that connection, I knew it was the right decision. And um, I've been here now for around 26 years. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool. I like the the trajectory all the way from like, you know, your start with the, the flies to now. And, um, and I've actually read some of those papers um, throughout, you know, with uh, the, the rat brain and everything. So cool. I still work with flies. Yeah. During during my my postdoc, there was this paper that came out from uh, Jay Hirsch and Colleen McClung, where they uh, found um, in a screen in fruit flies that amphetamine changed circadian rhythm related genes that altered behavioral sensitization. So that's when I had the little light bulb went up. Oh, you can use fruit flies in behavioral pharmacology. <laughs> so I got some flies from down the hall and gave them some LSD and they had the behavioral response. And so um, when I came to LSU as a assistant professor, it was half my research program was looking at fruit flies as a model for serotonin neuropharmacology. And the other half was looking at the neurobiology of psychedelics in mammalian brain. Yeah, I, it's nice to have a cross species kind of uh, lab, I think it gives you more perspective on what's going on. So. Cool. Mm -hmm. Did you guys end up mapping the fruit fly brain? Is that a thing that happened recently, or am I crazy? Oh no, no, that I, I wasn't involved in that project. But oh. They ended up they they mapped every neuron and connection in the fruit fly larva brain. 
Interesting. And it's just amazing. The fruit fly, like the adult brain, there's over a hundred thousand neurons and separate distinct areas that some like memory circuits, olfactory circuits. So it's a really, it's a complex system. And what I did was mapped where all the different, most of the serotonin receptors were, the serotonin 2A receptor, the 1A, the 1B, the 7, Mm -hmm. and identified key um, behavioral processes that those circuits mediate. Cool. Very cool. Before we get too far off topic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Let's get into talking about our current topic, and maybe we'll have you back for another episode on fruit flies and serotonin. (laughs) But uh, first, (laughs) I just want to orient everyone to some basic concepts of inflammation um, before we start talking about psychedelics. Um, So and just some of the terms that we're going to be using. So can you tell us a little bit about the immune response in the body and maybe like a crash course real quick? (laughs) So I'm, I I have to, I tell people, I am not a trained immunologist. Yeah. Um, So I'm a neuroscientist and uh, was when we discovered the anti-inflammatory effects of psychedelics back in 2007, um, really repositioned a lot of what I do in my research now to immunology and the role of psychedelics on the immune system. And so I picked up a little bit here and there, I think, to get by. Um, But when you're thinking of the immune system, the immune system has really evolved to protect um, an individual from the environment, like a host defense response, Um, like to protect against parasites, to protect against bacterial infections, um, where we have uh, developed different mechanisms to deal with um, an invading uh, an invading um, microorganism in some sense. You know, uh, in the case of um, like an adaptive immune cell, where we have T cells that make antibodies uh, that they will recognize and attack foreign invaders. Uh, there are uh, components of the immune system, the innate immune system, that are shared with invertebrates. For example, macrophages that respond to bacterial and fungal infections by releasing certain proteins called chemokines and cytokines that recruit other immune cells to attack and essentially destroy those bacteria or or, uh, fungal spores. Um, And so when people have inflammatory diseases, a lot of times it's the the body's immune system has kind of that, that balance has gotten out of whack. And so you have the various cells in the body become inflamed. Um, Inflammation is also, it's kind of a a misnomer. Um, Inflammation is kind of a catch-all term for a a cellular response to certain kinds of stressors. And it may be more accurate to talk about hypersensitivity. Like you have one kind of hypersensitivity where specific cells respond to allergens um, Mm. like pollen causes a certain type of cell when it when it responds to release histamine when histamine causes a localized immune response say your nose or your lungs and and coughing or a response to um, like a a skin response to um, poison ivy causes a local reaction there or a systemic inflammation and if somebody has a bacterial uh, inflammation that gets in, in the bloodstream that causes sepsis and that causes an immune response. So there are several different ways, but if you think of think of an immune response is really the response of a cell to an external stressor and that external stressor can come from many different sources. But oftentimes once that bacteria or that virus that has, initiated that response is gone, the immune system still stays up there and producing these inflammatory cytokines and other proteins that maintain this immune response. And so a lot of, a lot of autoimmune disorders are the body attacking itself, um, where the immune system just doesn't go back to homeostasis where, where it should be. Um, so when we look at psychedelics as, as sort of these anti-inflammatory agents, they are affecting not just something like um, like a corticosteroid, which is often an anti-inflammatory, it's essentially just an immunosuppressant. 
Mm. And what it does is it acts through the uh, glucocorticoid receptors to essentially shut down the immune response. Um, so if you're having an autoimmune disease or it will, it will shut down the immune response and hopefully um, reduce those symptoms uh, into remission. Uh, with something like an NSAID, like aspirin, it blocks prostaglandin biosynthesis, which is a molecule that's necessary for certain immune responses. So it, they're really turning off various aspects of the immune system. Um, mm -hmm. and, and psychedelics are not acting as immunosuppressants uh, in, in their mechanism of action. So they're not precisely you know, anti-inflammatory. They do reduce inflammation, but they also have other, other effects to sort of, it's more accurate to say that they bring, bring cells that are in these stressed hypersensitive states back to homeostasis. Yeah, I, baseline. I think that's a good way of looking at it, right? Um, as a response, not necessarily as like a whole large concept of inflammation as a whole. And I'm very familiar with that. I have oral allergy syndrome, which is the worst mm. inflammatory response um, to like raw oh. fruit. So anytime I eat like a raw fruit, I just like get hives or like my lips, like and mouth get really itchy. So mm -hmm. really annoying. <laughs> so that's what I yeah, thought. Yeah, there, there's a lot of, that, but oh yeah, there's a lot of cell types that really that, that produce this hypersensitivity. You think of the immune system and you think of antibodies and, and T cells and things like that, but immune response can happen from almost any any kind of cell endothelial cells, epithelial cells, muscle cells, that they can produce an immune response. Like when you have these allergic responses, it's not necessarily a cell making an antibody that's doing that. It's the actual epithelial cell that's in your mouth that's responding in this way to this external stressor, the, or the allergen that's there. That's very interesting. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned psychedelics and kind of how they're working as, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, not necessarily like immunosuppressants, but they're returning things to like a baseline. So mm -hmm. does this, how does this work with like serotonin receptors and where they are throughout the system, nervous system wise and in the periphery? Like how does serotonin itself as an endogenous compound? play a role in inflammation? Oh, serotonin uh, has been implicated in inflammation for, for decades. Uh, whenever your local inflammation or systemic inflammation is usually accompanied by high levels of serotonin. Um, and like if you take somebody who has severe chronic asthma and you look at serotonin levels in their lung, there's, it's going to be enhanced compared to normal. So high levels of serotonin have always been correlated with, with, inflammation and you can induce inflammation by adding serotonin to a lot of symptoms. And that pro-inflammatory effect of serotonin is by and large due to activation of serotonin 2A receptors. And that uh, activation of serotonin 2A receptors with serotonin causes T cells to mature and proliferate, causes recruitment of eosinophils, which were another type of immune cell to a site of, of injury or inflammation. Um, and the serotonin 2A receptor is about the most widely expressed serotonin receptor throughout the body. It's not, it's not just in the brain. Um, if you look at skin cells, bone cells, eye cells, muscle, um, there's expression of serotonin 2A receptors in all of these cells, in addition to just about every cell in the immune system. And um, it's given how widely is it it's expressed it was kind of surprising when they, they made the knockout mouse for the serotonin 2a receptor and it was surprisingly normal um in terms of things um so uh it it's more of some the 2a receptor is more of a, a serotonin receptor that modulates the inflammatory processes um and so serotonin uh, and inflammation at the 2A receptor can enhance immune responses, uh, make things more inflamed, uh, recruit inflammatory components. Um, but what we found with 
certain psychedelics is that it does the opposite of serotonin, hmm. that it actively will recruit anti-inflammatory pathways. Um, in, there, there have been several studies that have shown that antagonists of the serotonin 2A receptor are anti-inflammatory, but that's not very surprising thinking that, okay, if you just block the pro-inflammatory effects of, of these psychedelics, it'll be anti-inflammatory. But for the agonists of the serotonin 2A receptor, the effects are super, super potent, mm. like um, 100 times less than a corticosteroid for the dose at its target to produce sort of a similar therapeutic effect. So the number of receptors that are actually being occupied by one of these psychedelics is very low, um, showing that it's really an agonist property of, of the receptor producing these anti-inflammatory effects. And what we think is happening is for certain psychedelics, but not all of them, they're interacting with, you know, if you can think of the binding site within a receptor has different amino acids that are poking in at it. And the agonist will engage with a subset of those and put the receptor in a confirmation that on the inside of the cell, it is able to recruit certain signaling pathways um, to do cellular function, like, oh, I've been activated. But what some psychedelics do is they engage different sets of residues in that receptor. So they make it, they, they lock it in a slightly different shape. And in that little different shape, they don't recruit the pro-inflammatory mechanisms. They recruit the anti-inflammatory mechanisms. And so uh, research in my lab uh, recently, we, I think we've identified what some of these key residues are and how we need to engage those to make a drug um, anti-inflammatory. For example, um, you have a very powerful psychedelic drug like uh, psilocybin in psilocin, which is the active metabolite, um, and compare that to say the effects of dimethyltryptamine or DMT. They're both really powerful psychedelics behaviorally, but psilocin is a really potent anti-inflammatory in our, in our um, asthma models, but DMT has absolutely no effect at all in, in the asthma models. And the only difference between those two molecules is one hydroxy, an oxygen and a hydrogen at the top of that um, six-membered ring. Hmm. And so if we look at other tryptamines, um, if they have that hydroxy at that same position, they're anti-inflammatory. If they don't have the hydroxy at that position as a tryptamine, they're not anti-inflammatory. So through studies comparing those types of molecules uh, in the tryptamine class and the phenethylamine class, we've kind of put together this SAR of what may be happening and what residues engaged to, to make a psychedelic anti-inflammatory. And what's interesting is we see no correlation between the ability of a psychedelic to activate a receptor or the magnitude of the effective activation of that receptor to the anti-inflammatory ability of that drug. So it's some other pathway or, or effector that's being recruited that's not normally recruited. And that's, that's still a puzzle that we're, we're trying to work out now on, on what that is. That's very cool. You mentioned that psilocin is, um, you know, more anti-inflammatory. Do you think that also has anything to do with the decent affinity for the H1 histamine receptor versus like? Um, I don't think so because at the levels that we're producing a significant effect, um, for example, we're, we're seeing um, uh, 0.1 milligrams per kilogram inhaled of psilocin will fully protect against against asthma. And, and that is um, 10, 20 times less than the behavioral threshold. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's really, it, and, and the, the effects that we're having aren't really just consistent with an antihistamine because we're, we're affecting the migration of T cells into the lungs, of eosinophils into the lungs, mucus production, um, whereas 
the antihistamines are um, blocking the mast cell degranulation uh, at, at that level, which does contribute, but we're seeing more of an effect than just an antihistamine. And when we look at a phenethylamine um, that doesn't have affinity for histamine receptors, we see a, the identical effects. And with, with phenethylamines, we're able to play with some of the, the, the four position and the two five position with, with different molecules. And so um, we've sort of done some complementary mapping out and those have fed into our um, third generation, next generation sort of non-psychedelic, psychedelic anti-inflammatories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, what is like the goal, I guess, of psychedelics as anti-inflammatories? Like, is there, besides like you've mentioned, uh, things like asthma, is there any relation to it in a neuropsychiatric standpoint as well? There could be. Um, what, what we've looked at so far, and we've got, um, preclinical animal model data for, for really good, robust anti-inflammatory effects, um, across several different models is like cardiovascular, vascular inflammation, um, asthma. Um, we're now looking at rheumatoid arthritis, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, ocular disease. Um, so I think it's more of a global, global mechanism. And if you think about the current therapies that are on the market, um, for inflammation versus psychiatric disease or, or just even the general population. You've got about 10, 20, 30% of the population with psychiatric disease to some extent, but you have you know, 70 to 80% of the population in any given year having some inflammatory related disease. And as we get older in age, inflammation, you know, my back hurts today, I'm stiff, I've got arthritis, you know, that's it's something that, that is really affecting everybody. And um, the medications that are out there, like corticosteroids, which are probably the ones that are most often used or biologics, have a lot of um, a lot of negative aspects associated with them. Like for biologics, they're immunosuppressants, they can cause reactivation of tuberculosis. Uh, they're expensive, have to be given as, a, um, as an injection and infusion. Insurance companies may not always pay for it. Corticosteroids, say you've got um, a skin problem, you can only use corticosteroids for a short amount of time because it causes staining of skin. So then you have to stop, but then it comes back. And so with, with psychedelics, we have a, a really a novel mechanism of a drug that is not an immunosuppressant. It's not taking out the immune system to make somebody um, prone to an opportunistic infection. It's not, um, it's not, uh, actively suppressing the immune system. So you could conceivably at subbehavioral doses, use it in uh, a brand new mechanism to treat chronic inflammatory disease without all the associated side effects. And in that could be the treatment of psychiatric disease. There's, um, uh, in depressed individuals, it's not all depressed individuals, but a, a large fraction of people who have major depression also have uh, neuroinflammation and neuroinflammation is associated with substance use disorder, with neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Um, so it's quite conceivable that um, a significant number of patients with psychiatric disorders that part of those symptoms are due to neuroinflammation and that the potential therapeutic benefit of some of these psychedelics to treat psychiatric disorders like depression may include an anti-inflammatory component. And in my lab, we haven't quite yet been able to merge those two fields. Um, we have been looking at, at um, some primary neuronal co-cultures with, with immune cells to begin to explore that. Um, but I think that's still a really a great unanswered question is, you know, what role does neuroinflammation play in these neurological disorders and can psychedelics treat, treat that aspect of, of, of inflammation? Mm -hmm. So wide open field right now, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. to see where it goes. And yeah. I, yeah, and I am seeing, yeah. So in, in a lot of the clinical trials now that are going on, the outcome measures 
are involving taking uh, serum samples and looking for inflammatory biomarkers. Um, so I think that that will that will help uh, or, or begin to address those issues on the clinical side of things. Yeah, can't wait to see what happens. It's very cool. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned some work uh, with phenethylamine. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your work with DOI um, as an anti-inflammatory. Um, so I guess the first question is, can you talk about some of like the early findings with DOI and um, some of the psychedelics? You mentioned, you alluded to it a little bit, but just more specifically. Mm -hmm. So with DOI was the first one that we used. Um, DOI, in, a, in the technical speak is 2,5-dimethoxy-4-iodo-amphetamine, um, which is a fancy way of saying it's an amphetamine structural related drug um, that is in the same overall drug class as mescaline. So if you think of psychedelics, they can fall into three major um, scaffold types. There are tryptamines, which include like DMT and psilocybin. There's ergolines, which LSD, um, and phenethylamines, which um, are represented in nature by mescaline. Um, so the phenethylamine psychedelics like DOI are very selective for the 5-HT2 receptor type. Um, the 5-HT2A receptor is the one that's thought to confer the uh, behavioral effects of psychedelics, um, as well as the anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, drugs like psilocin will bind to and activate uh, nearly all the serotonin receptors, and ergolines will also activate uh, dopamine receptors, adrenergic receptors, praseamine receptors. So DOI is very selective. When you're using DOI as a tool, as opposed to psilocybin, you're more sure that what you're looking at is something from the serotonin two receptors. Now we, we can't distinguish between A, B and C with DOI. So we, some experiments we have to go in with extra tools, but we started with DOI in these assays um, just so we could have the cleanest interpretation of, of what the experimental outcome was. And our, our very first experiment was taking primary smooth muscle cells from a rat aorta and treating them with TNF-alpha. And then 24 hours later, measuring the level of, of cytokines that were indicative of an inflammatory response. Like these smooth muscle cells will produce um, small peptide proteins, interleukin, interleukin-6, interleukin-5, abbreviated like six style five. And the presence of those indicates oh, those are having an inflammatory response. So we took DOI and we added them to those cells and showed that we very, very potently blocked the effects of TNF-alpha to increase the secretion of these cytokines. Mm -hmm. um, and so that told us, oh, that must be a serotonin two receptor. Uh, so then beyond that, we use selective blockers of the 2B receptor and the 2C receptor and the 2A receptor and showed that only when we block the 2A receptor did we block these anti-inflammatory effects of DOI. So the first drug that we then took into a whole animal was again DOI uh, because of its selectivity for the 5-HT2 receptor. But we also looked at, in those cells, we looked at um, LSD, and we looked at a couple other molecules and showed that even at the same level that DOI had about a hundred times more potent effects than LSD had. So even in our very first paper, we had some inkling that there was some difference in psychedelics to, to have effects on um, these inflammatory, pro-inflammatory pathways. Um, so we, pretty much have stuck with DOI as our prototypical anti-inflammatory psychedelic uh, for its selectivity. Um, and we, we looked at a series of 25 psychedelics from all three classes in a publication from a couple of years ago in our asthma model where we worked out the SAR. And we, we used uh, representative members from all three major types and we did the receptor pharmacology, looking at 
um, how good that these drugs were at activating the receptor just on a cell and then how good they were at blocking the inflammation in our asthma model. And from that, we were able to get some new knowledge on what residues were potentially engaging with what aspects of certain, certain parts of the chemicals and came up with some new chemicals beyond that that we designed to be maybe better than DOI as an anti-inflammatory. Um, so the second generation that we came up with out of that was a drug that was as anti-inflammatory as DOI, but in head twitch behaviors, which is the mouse model for behavior of, of psychedelics, um, was 70% less head twitch. Mm, and so then building on that knowledge and then some additional data that has come in, we then went to a third generation drug that specifically engaged residues in the binding pocket um, to essentially serve, that serves as a toggle switch, I think, to make a drug anti-inflammatory. And in the process of, of making a drug optimized for anti-inflammatory pathways, we're also dialing down the pathways that are thought to be relevant to behaviors like the canonical signaling pathway of GQ and calcium and beta arrestin, that those are further reduced, but we've maintained anti-inflammatory potency. So we haven't looked at the behavior of these third generation molecules yet, but I would predict that they're gonna be, have, have very little behavior associated with them. That's, so that's really cool. sort of what we're doing with the drug design side of things. Yeah. Um, so you used these different compounds as in like an asthma model. So you talk, you kind of like mentioned the inhalation of these. So was mm -hmm. it using like a nebulizer, like a, like general, like uh -huh. a nebulizer? So that is fascinating to me. <laughs> so uh -huh. I was curious, like how does, how would that work? Like in, in the, the real world, I guess, like, is that something that is, is hopefully going to be developed like for humans, like one day with like some of these newer compounds or just with psychedelics? Is that something that could happen? Yeah. So for a lot of, uh, of our experiments for the nebulization, we just use like off the shelf nebulizer setups that would be used for children. Um, and for the mouse, uh, when we, when we give the drug to the mouse, um, we have a little, little soft cloth mesh thing that the mouse will crawl into and is, the nose pokes out and that fits into like an L that has mm -hmm. a little sonic sonicator nebulizer thing that we put the drug on, onto and in about one minute it nebulizes the drug and the mouth mouse breathes in and out and we take it out and put it back in its cage um, so it's just like if you had a nebulizer on your own and breathed in for about a minute um, and that uh, delivers the drug directly to the lungs. Um, and when you do it that way, only about 15% of the drug actually makes it directly to the target. Most of the drug gets caught in the, um, you know, the mucous membranes and the esophagus um, and the nasal cavity. So if you think that we have a potency of point uh, zero, zero 005 milligram per kilogram EC50, it's really much less than that if we could deliver all, all the drug directly to the target in the lungs. Mm. Um, but also an interesting point was we found that different routes of administration were as potent. If we did an injection of the drug into the interperitoneal cavity, we had the exact same potency as if it was inhaled. And so it's, it's not exactly, you know, an oral administration, but it, it's has to go through the first pass metabolism, hit systemic circulation and then get to the lung. And it's still as active as the, the same dose as act, active as the inhaled dose. So that would suggest that um, potentially somebody could keep their asthma under control, not as necessarily a rescue, but under control with a pill. Mm -hmm of microdosing some psychedelic that was optimized for asthma. Um, we've also found that if you if give the drug um, 
to a mouse that already has severe asthma symptoms that that will rescue and reverse those symptoms as well. So it's not, it would not be a fast acting rescue, but it does, it is able to rescue. Um, but the, the different routes of administration would suggest that, um, yeah, even like a pill or a patch could potentially be used to keep systemic inflammation at bay with somebody. That's really cool. And I feel like for implications with like something like exercise induced asthma, where if someone knows that they're mm -hmm. going to go play a sport or like whatever, they could take a pill and then, you know, not have to worry about stopping in the middle of whatever they're doing or in the middle of a run and using an inhaler or something. So yeah, potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. I just thought of that off my head, but, um, so I just thought about going back to some of the chemistry related stuff. Um, you tested like DOI, LSD, and, and a lot of these psychedelics um, have a chiral center, meaning that they have mm -hmm. different isomers. And I noticed um, in some of the papers, you look at specifically the R isomer of DOI. Mm -hmm. So the first part of my question is why the R isomer? And then the second part, did you look at any of the LSD isomers as well? So we have looked at the R and the S isomer of DOI. And um, the S isomer is about tenfold less potent than the R isomer. So it does make a difference. So that does kind of go along the line of uh, the behavioral studies that have, that have gone on. If you compare the R versus S, that there's about a tenfold difference. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most drugs that you get, it's the racemic mixture. Um, when I was getting the DOI, there's an interesting story behind that is I was, I was still in the process of getting my schedule one license for the laboratory after hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And I um, called up my dad one day and I was like, Hey, can, can you send me some non-scheduled psychedelics that we can use? And he had some RDOI sent the RDOI down. So that's nice. uh, the batch of, of RDOI that we started with. Um, but eventually we did test the SDOI and it was about tenfold less effective. So pretty much for all the phenethylamines, when we've, we've had the ability to, we've stuck with R mm, okay. uh, for, for the enantiomer. Nice. Um, and then have you looked at any of the LSD isomers? So we've, we've looked at in the asthma model, we've looked at LSD, we've looked at ethlad. Um, which has an ethyl on the amine coming off. So LSD is a partial agonist for some signaling um, pathways, whereas ethylad is a full agonist. So there was some thinking that maybe it was a full versus partial, why LSD was only a partial agonist. And LSD really at, at, at a relatively high dose is only able to rescue about half the inflammation. Okay. or prevent half the inflammation. And FLAD had about the same activity. When we looked at lyceride, lyceride had no anti-inflammatory efficacy. Um, we've looked at a couple others. Um, in general though, the ergolines haven't been as, um, as efficacious as some of the, the tryptamines and, and some of the phenethylamines. Interesting. So LSD in general, I was, it was really surprising because it's very behaviorally potent. It's yeah. only able to rescue about half of it. And we're now um, working on some of the final data sets on a, a paper for submission comparing DOTFM with DOI. Hmm. Um, and it's like RDOTFM. So RDOTFM is very similar in structure to DOI, um, but at, at, where DOI has an iodine at that four position, this one has a trifluoromethyl, so a carbon with um, three fluorines mm -hmm. that's there. And DOTFM is a very potent behaviorally, react, behavior, behaviorally active psychedelic. Um, uh, it's almost indistinguishable and it's receptor pharmacology from DOI in drug discrimination studies. It's indistinguishable from DOI. And in our models of inflammation, it has absolutely no anti-inflammatory effects. Interesting. At all. 
And so that's we're 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 leveraging those two two molecules to try to tease out in in our models. Okay, what's common to five HT two A receptor activation, and then what's common, you know, what's potentially unique to DOI and what's unique to DOTFM, and it's turned out to be way more complicated. Um, than I thought it would ever be to to um, try and go through those through those results. Um, I feel like that's how science works out. It's like something that you thought was going to be, you know, not easy, but relatively less hard than other things. <laughs> Turns out there's a whole complicated story behind it. Right, right. So it, it's really what you would think are small changes have, can have, you know, dramatic effects on whether or not that that uh, molecule will be anti-inflammatory or not. And we're, we're still, that's the big question in the laboratory that we're trying to ask is why is that? And I think we, we now have an understanding of what's going on at the drug receptor interaction level, but we still don't have any idea of what's happening at, at the cell level, what's happening um, once, once the receptor is activated, then what's the pathway that's recruited? And mm -hmm. that's, that's a big area of research. Um, have the fortune to collaborate with Dr. Tim Foster here in the microbiology and immunology department. Um, and over the last few years of our collaboration, he's been looking at additional models of inflammation and kind of coming at it from the other side where I'm coming at it from the receptor side and he's now coming at it from more of the, um, the, the symptom side and working back. And so somewhere we're gonna meet in the middle and we'll have this figured out. Awesome. Um, let's see. I'm just looking to see if I missed anything specific. Um, so I guess before we end, because I think we're getting close to time here, um, I wanted to just briefly touch on the antagonist. So the serotonergic antagonists that you mentioned um, have those uh, anti-inflammatory effects, which you mentioned might be due to just the blocking of the serotonin, which has pro-inflammatory effects. Are there um, more selective antagonists versus some of the non-selective ones that have you seen any differences across antagonists in potencies? Um, the antagonists, and a, a lot of the antagonists that have been used in studies have been catanserin. Mm -hmm. And so some historically, a lot of the literature from the, the 90s and the 2000s um, had shown that the if you use uh, catanserin, sometimes that will have an anti-inflammatory effect. And so they've concluded that, oh, that proves that serotonin through the 2A receptor is actually pro-inflammatory. The problem with catanserin, as, as you mentioned, it's as equally a potent antagonist to the histamine H1 receptors, which can have an effect on certain cell types that are being looked at. Um, so we try to stay away from catanserin whenever possible because of that. And so we use uh, M100-907 when possible. But M100 is not water-soluble. So that that um, presents some difficulty because, uh, for example, ethanol is anti-inflammatory. And if we dissolve it in ethanol, put it in our asthma model, the ethanol mm. arm is anti-asthmatic. Okay. Um, so... Uh, it's more selective. Uh, I think it's easier to use in, in cells than in whole animals. Um, so I think our, our more definitive studies are when we use the 5-HT2A knockout mouse mm -hmm. and show that we don't have effects in the 5-HT2A knockout mouse, that the, the inflammation is still present at, at the same levels as the, the control that's, that's not been treated. Gotcha. Um, so I know that M100-907 is probably the better one to use for um, cell culture in vitro studies. Pimavanserin is now, it's an approved medication that's on the market for the treatment of Parkinson's psychosis that's, that's from Acadia Pharmaceuticals. And that is a, a fairly decent selectivity for the 5-HT2A receptor. And um, fortunately that's not water soluble either. Um, I was but dealing with that today with, uh, I'm using M100 or Volanansarin, but I was mm -hmm. trying to dilute it and I've never had problems really before. And I don't know why today was the day, but I 
didn't get it into solution. And then I was like, I'm going home and I'm going to do it next week. Yeah. And if we, if we use a, if we use enough DMSO to keep it in solution, um, then in some of our protocols, it's actually toxic to the animal mm -hmm. to, to expose it to the DMSO. When we had it as a carrier for the lung, it caused scarring of the lungs. So we can't do that. When we tried to do the um, IP administration over three days, it, it, mice didn't like that. So um, I don't like using DMSO. So. No, no. So <laughs> we in, in in vitro studies will will use um, the M100 in DMSO, um, but for the in vivo studies, yeah. uh, we we we've, we've only used the knockout mouse. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's all of the questions I had. We we covered a lot, so I think that was it was good, and it was a really interesting discussion and something you hear less about everything in the psychedelic space is very much depression, anxiety, clinical trials. And, and so it's nice to talk about a different topic for once <laughs> and bring it yeah. to more people. Cause I feel like, you know, it's just less talked about. So. Yeah. We first published on this back in 2008. And even now I'll, I'll give a seminar and I'll talk about the anti-inflammatory effects. And so many people still have not have, not heard of it or become aware of it. I think everybody who's in the field um, has been aware of it for quite some mm -hmm. time, but it's it's not as sexy as all the brain scans and everything and the general, you know, uh, Netflix is not going to make a, a, a special on psychedelics to treat your psoriasis because <laughs> it's not as sexy as, as to trip or not. Is it necessary to cure your PTSD? Yeah. <laughs> but if you uh, think of... So all of the, you know, we're, we almost every one of us has some chronic inflammatory condition. And I think it, it's just going to be hugely valuable as a new tool to treat, to treat inflammatory disorders. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I really had a great time uh, talking about it with you today. Yeah, thanks. So uh, that being said, is there any final words you want to leave our listeners with or? Um. I think the future is bright for psychedelics and psychedelic therapy. And um, I'll see where, see where the future takes us. Sounds good. All right. Thank you again. And I'm looking forward to reading more work from you in the future and the papers that you mentioned are in the works. So, yeah. And thank you uh, to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Your Brain on Science. And we hope you enjoyed the discussion uh, with Dr. Nichols. So if you want to see a video of this, as well as more from us, uh, check out our website, psychedelicbrainscience.com. Thanks. Oh.